in the Bible is confidence about what will happen coupled with ignorance about its timing. So there are, are two ingredients in the recipe for biblical hope. First, resolute confidence about what will happen. Not might, not there's a chance, but will. And add to that, mix in a healthy dose of humble ignorance about when it will happen. Sometimes, rarely, God gives a timeline, but, but most often, biblical hope means that it could happen at any point between now and the distant future. And we just have to wait. Hope in the Bible is confidence about what will happen, coupled with ignorance about its timing. It's, it's something like, if you can relate, the anticipation of the birth of a child. As long as the baby is healthy by God's grace, you know it's only a matter of time. But so-called due dates are most often ignored by the baby in utero. They, they come early or late. Or maybe it's the next season of the show you've been excited to see. You know that Ted Lasso season three is coming, but you're not quite sure when yet. Of course, shows can be canceled. Even far more significant desires can be cut short. I wonder if you are hoping for anything today. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? How certain are you that what you hope for will happen? Well, biblical hope is as certain as knowing at midnight that the sun will rise in the morning. It is as certain as knowing in your youth that you will one die one day. Not if, but when. How do we know that biblical hopes are likewise absolutely certain? Well, the Bible can hold out certain hope to us this morning because of who God is. He is above all gods, the only true God, the, the highest and only sovereign creator and ruler of all. And it's with that kind of hope, that kind of certainty that animates Joseph, the life of Joseph, the subject of our sermon text this morning. We are studying the, the final section of Genesis, the story of the sons of Jacob. Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, has been on the, the center stage, but it's been a, a story of, of tragedy. He has been betrayed and sold into slavery by his brothers. He has been framed and imprisoned by his master. So he is now in the pit of prison with no allies and no strength. Well, except, of course, God, the highest and only sovereign creator and ruler of all. The refrain of what we studied most recently, chapter 39, at beginning and end, was that the Lord, do you remember, was with Joseph. So this week we continue into chapters 40 and 41, which give us reason with Joseph to have hope in our sovereign God, who raises his servant from the pit to reign and rescue. So these chapters we'll study this morning talk a lot about dreams, 
And those dreams are opportunity to show that God rules even over the greatest dynasty of Egypt and is using his servant to work out his sovereign will. So, if you would, please open in your Bibles with me to the 40th chapter of Genesis. Genesis chapter 40 and 41, our sermon this morning, The Forgotten Brother and the Sovereign God. Genesis 40 and 41, The Forgotten Brother and the Sovereign God. If you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Kelton. I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here of Stafford Baptist Church. If you don't have a Bible, it will help you. If you grab one of our pew Bibles and open it to page 33, where you will, where you will find Genesis 40. And if you don't own a copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to, to take that one with you as our gift to you and continue to read it. It is our habit often to read the entire passage as we start, but today we're going to read parts and summarize others. So especially, you'll find it, it helpful to follow along if you keep that Bible open on your lap this morning. So we will read from God's Word soon, but before we read, I'd like to, to give you a, a road map, you know, show you the, the path we're going to go and our, our destination. So our, our outline and our main point this morning. So first, we're going to have three points this morning, three points that are three words. First, hope. Hope will cover all of chapter 40, verses 1 through 23. Our second word is rise. Rise, that will cover the first 36 verses of chapter 41. And finally, rain. Hope, rise, rain. Rain will cover chapter 41, verses 37 through 57. And so those three words, hope, rise, rain, form the heart of our main idea today, our destination. What's it all about? So if you want one sentence to summarize these 80 verses, these two chapters, it might be this. Hope in our sovereign God who raises his servant from the pit to reign and rescue. The one sentence to remember Summarizing these two chapters is this. Hope in our sovereign God who raises his servant from the pit to reign and rescue. As we study these two chapters this morning, we will see that Joseph has resolute confidence in God over even the threats and powers of Egypt. No matter how long he was forced to wait, he had biblical hope. But the waiting does end. God had given him dreams some 13 years ago, what we studied way back in Genesis 37, of royal homage, right, of Joseph exalted and his brothers bowing. Well, God will, in this chapter, raise up this servant from the pit to reign and rescue. And of course, this is also the story of our Savior, Jesus. We today can have hope because God raised Jesus also from the pit to now reign and rescue. Hope in our sovereign God who raises his servant from the pit to reign and to rescue. Before we read, we're going to pray once more for God's help in our hearing and for the proclaiming of his word. And then we'll read from Genesis 40. So let's, let's pray once more for God's help. Please pray with me. We pray to you, God of mercy, God of grace, to... To this morning, by your word, give us eyes to see. 
Lord, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see your smiling face towards us in Christ, to see your love. Father, we confess that we are people who need hope, whose hopes often fail. Lord, we do pray that that by your word you would help our hearts to unfold like flowers before you. That the the sins and sorrows that that so easily entangle and, and close our hearts this morning would be lifted. And this we pray, Lord, in the name of our risen and reigning Savior, who is our hope. Amen. Read with me Genesis 40, starting in verse 1. Some time after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. The word of the Lord. Well, we'll continue with the narrative later, but, but our first point, let's start, brothers and sisters, with hope. Hope. We join our story in prison, the prison in verse 3 where Joseph was confined. Joseph, will recall, had done nothing to deserve this imprisonment. He was, in fact, absolutely trustworthy in his master's house. He had been an industrious servant of the captain of the guard. He brought great prosperity to his house. Yet the wife of his master continually tempted him to adultery. And in that temptation, he remained faithful. So... She framed him for sexual assault, and now he is in prison. We don't know for how long exactly. If you look back at verse 1, it just says, Some time after this, some time after his imprisonment. But we do know from some time markers in chapter 41 that between his service in the house and this imprisonment, it has been 11 years. 11 years. And most think that most of that time was spent in prison. What do 11 years of suffering in a foreign land, the product of these twin injustices, do to Joseph? Well, Joseph isn't despondent. We see that here in the first eight verses. Notice the the captain, the master, entrusts these two new prisoners, in verse 4, to his care. Joseph is still working hard and and well in prison. These two new prisoners might seem like low-level servants, but in reality, they are important officers of the king court. They would be responsible for everything that the, the pharaoh ate and drank and therefore had to be absolutely trustworthy. 
to stop assassination attempts. They likely oversaw the entire process of, of food, food production and preparation for the king. But they were also his, his confidence, people who wielded great influence as the king's counselors. Well, we don't know exactly what they did, but in, in verse 2, they've angered the king. And for their offense, they're imprisoned for some time with the captain of the guard. Well, Joseph isn't just still working hard. Even through all his suffering, he is still compassionate. So see, these, these two officials both have a dream on the same night. And due to the, the coincidence and the content, they're, they're troubled. In verse 6, when Joseph comes to them in the morning, he notices them. And with compassion, asks about their welfare. Often one of the first casualties in our suffering is our compassion. In suffering, our world can shrink so that we only think of ourselves in, in our pain. We turn in to ourselves. And especially in prolonged suffering, after 11 years, we can become bitter. But the miracle here is, is Joseph is still compassionate, still trustworthy and kind even after 11 years of suffering. And I think the end of verse 8 give us a clue as to why. But, but first, before we look at that, we have to understand that Egyptians put a lot of stock into, into dreams. They believed that sleep put them into direct and, and real contact with another world. Where the dead and the gods dwell. The dreams for the Egyptians were, were gifts from the gods. And so in, in Egypt there was a whole class of learned specialists in Egypt. Trained professionals who interpreted dreams. They had dream books outlining the meaning of, of different kinds of dreams. So obviously these two prisoners are concerned because in prison... They had no access to such a trained professional. Enter Joseph in verse 8. Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. First of all, this is a not so subtle denunciation of the Egyptian gods. Your specialists, he says, are groping in the dark. It is God alone, the true and only sovereign who gives and interprets dreams. This is going to be an, an ongoing theme throughout this, this passage and the whole Bible. The, the Bible recognizes that there are other religions. They might even have some truth to them because we know there are other real spiritual forces but God is sovereign over all of them. He is supreme, absolute, ultimate. The events of the future foretold by, by dreams are in the hands of, of Yahweh alone. So Joseph here, even in the face of the great power of the greatest dynasty in, in the world, Egypt, proclaims that God is sovereign. So can you hear, saints, in verse 8, a deep profession of faith. Do not interpretations belong to God. The miracle that has sustained Joseph to be trustworthy and kind 
is his faith. It is his enduring belief in God and his power despite his circumstances. You might recall last week in, in chapter 39, Joseph's remarkable ability to fight temptation came from his remarkably clear understanding of who God is. And his years of languishing in the pit of prison have not his, hindered his ability to see and hope in God. We have to especially consider, friends, verse 8, in light of what got him into prison in the first place. All the way back in the beginning that started him on this journey, the reason his brothers hated him and sold him was because of his dreams. The dreams that God gave him 11 years ago and dreams that as of yet are very far from reality. Joseph still has biblical hope, enduring confidence about what will happen based on the dreams that, that God had given him, despite how you might interpret his circumstances. We see this hope, his enduring confidence, show up in his request to the cupbearer. We have the first dream related to him in verses 9 through 11. Joseph's interpretation of it in verses 12 and 13. And Joseph's request to the cupbearer in verses 14 and 15. So not surprising for a cupbearer, his dream is about making wine and placing that wine in the king's hand. And Joseph makes its meaning plain in verse 13. He says, in three days, this cupbearer will be restored. That is what the, the, the dream from God means. And because Joseph is so certain, he asks the cupbearer, remember me when this happens? Appeal to Pharaoh on my behalf? And he relates to the cupbearer in verses 14 and 15 his, his twin injustices, his theft from home, his wrongful imprisonment. Joseph is, is so certain that God will restore the cupbearer without anyone's request. But he's not so certain that the cupbearer will remember him despite his request. Well, it seems that the baker is inspired by Joseph's work here and, and tells his version next there, starting in verse 16. In a similar dream, now with baked goods, but birds now eating the bread from a basket on his head. Well, unfortunately, in verse 18, it doesn't mean good things for this baker. Joseph makes it plain, in three days, you will be hanged. God is telling him of his impending death. Well, let's pick up the reading in verse 20 and see if Joseph was right. Did these dreams come true? Genesis 40, starting in verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. And so it goes, word for word. What God had revealed to Joseph, no ifs, ands, or buts. 
Joseph's ground for hope and confidence were justified. This is further proof, though it's not said in so many words, that God is still with Joseph and showing him still steadfast love. And so, saints, the grounds for our hope in God is justified because he rules all of history toward his appointed end. He determines the ends from the beginning. Well, you might be thinking, does this mean that Joseph's time in prison is ended? God, by his invisible hand of providence, brought these two prisoners, put them under his care, gave them dreams so that Joseph could interpret them and have a sympathetic ear with the king. Seems reasonable. Well, let's read the final verse of our chapter, verse 23. Chapter 40, verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Well, it might be how we like to interpret circumstances, but we're notoriously poor at interpreting what God is up to. God gave the prisoners a dream about what would happen in three days for them, but, but not Joseph. The secret things belong to God. God in his providence is working all things according to his counsel, but it is hidden from Joseph. You know, this forgetting here in verse 23 the cupbearer will later refer to as an offense. But, but even this, what we would call sin, the cupbearer neglecting to do for others what he would wish that they do to him, is even a part of God's plan designed to accomplish his ends. Yes, people's sins against you do not derail God's purposes for you. Joseph may here at the end of chapter 40 be forgotten by man, but he is not forgotten by God. Hope in the Bible is confidence about what will happen coupled with ignorance about its timing. We don't know when. Joseph will have to wait until the proper time. And that brings us to our second point Brothers and sisters, the second movement of our passage, rise. In Genesis chapter 41, verses 1 through 36, rise. We're going to pick up our reading and advance in the timeline here by two years in verse 1. So read with me Genesis 41, starting in verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh woke, and behold, it was a dream. 
So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Well, here we have Pharaoh, king of Egypt, dreaming his twin dreams like Joseph and like the prisoners, a pair of dreams. And even if you've never read this story, you have to assume you know what's going to happen next. But we'll, we'll get to the interpretations soon. But first, three elements in these dreams. The, the Nile, the, the cows, and, and the grain are, are what gave Egypt, this great kingdom, its, its power and prestige. The, the Nile was the lifeblood of the fruitful land. It was rich with, with cattle and grain. And so whatever the dreams mean, clearly Pharaoh is troubled by them. It, it doesn't seem good. So he sends for these dream specialists in verse 8. The, the magicians and the wise men. But, but after relating the dream to them, they cannot interpret them. All the wisdom of the kingdom is no help. Despite whatever success they've had previously in hearing and interpreting dreams, they can't help now. Sometimes our God confounds the wisdom of the wise to achieve his purpose. Even here, we see the invisible hand of God. Well, in our next verses, in, in 9 through 13, we learn that the cupbearer is still in the employ of the king, and he finally remembers Joseph. Now, two years later, from verse 1. So the cupbearer in these verses relates his share of the, the events from chapter 40. The, the young Hebrew interpreted our dreams, and so it came to be. So in verse 14, Pharaoh asks for him. The narrative here moves at light speed. He's brought out, made presentable, and is before the king all in one verse. So let's read verses 14 and 15. Genesis 41, verses 14 and 15. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Well, here it is, ladies and gentlemen. Joseph has been on a slow and tragic descent for now 13 years. And in the flash of the eye, we get the impression within minutes, he's been catapulted to the hall of the most powerful man on earth seeking his wisdom and counsel. The arm of the catapult pulled back, waiting, waiting, has snapped, sending its cargo skyward. Joseph is on his meteoric rise. I wonder, what, what would you say to the king in this moment? Your one and long, long-awaited chance to speak for yourself. To take control. 
You've only been a pawn in the evil schemes of your brothers, the traitors, your, your owners, never able to speak in your defense. You know, he, he has reason to boast. Yes, mighty king, it is I who gave the interpretation to your servants, the cupbearer and the baker. Trust my wisdom. Or maybe he'll freeze. Have you ever met a celebrity? It's so easy to be tongue-tied and timid. Maybe he'll stammer and shuffle back, afraid of such a mighty king. I think it's easy for us to forget in narratives like these that, that Joseph is just like you or me. The kinds of things that you or I might do in this scenario are exactly the kinds of things that he might do. This is not just some great story, but real history. A real man with real fears and a real God. Here he is in front of the, the premier world power who could execute him or make his wildest dreams come true in a moment. And so what does Joseph say? Verse 16. Read with me verse 16. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. He points the finger to God. Not I, but God. He takes no credit and points this king, who is thought to be a God incarnate, to the only true God, the highest and only sovereign creator and ruler of all. The true king will give you, Pharaoh, a favorable answer. That's an audacious thing to say when he hasn't even heard the dream yet. Here he is, a young nobody with nothing from the middle of nowhere, speaking the excellencies of Yahweh in the halls of Pharaoh. Joseph knows that his wisdom, his ability to interpret dreams comes from God. And he gives credit where credit is due. This is the way God works, saints. God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Joseph, to shame the magicians. He chooses what is weak to shame the strong. A prisoner to shame the mighty men of his court. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human might boast in the presence of God. Not I, but God. God doesn't scan to and fro on the earth looking for the, the 1% to represent him in the halls of power. If he did, none of us would have any hope. No, he, he uses the humble, the weak, the powerless to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. In fact, the, the community of Christ, the church, is an assembly for the humble, the weak, the powerless. Not for those who have their lives all together, who have figured it out, who can sufficiently please God and therefore assemble before Him. No, it's for those who cannot save themselves. Those who have been brought by divine providence to know their own need 
and unworthiness, all to speak and sing the praises of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't think that because you're a nobody with nothing from the middle of nowhere that God has no use for you. There are no little people. There are no little churches in God's kingdom. He can. He will use you too. Just like he used Joseph to proclaim his absolute sovereignty over the gods of Egypt to one of the gods thought incarnate. God directs the future, not Pharaoh and not the Nile. In our next verses, 17 through 24, Pharaoh narrates his dreams to Joseph, bringing Joseph up to speed. It's, it's quite similar to what we read in the, the first eight verses. So we, we jump down to join him at verse 25. We're going to read the, the interpretation of the dream. And I want you to notice that three times Joseph magnifies God at the start in the middle and at the end. This is what God, not some Egyptian power, is about to do. So start reading with me in verse 25. Chapter 41, verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means the thing is fixed by God, and God will bring it about. Do you hear it? Beginning, middle, and end. This is what God is about to do. God rules over the kingdom of Egypt. All the events of history, even plenty and famine, He is the only sovereign. Well, alas, we know that the two dreams have one meaning. The doubling, according to verse 32, means the thing is fixed. It will happen soon. There will be seven years of plenty, above and beyond, plump, full, and good. Then seven years of famine. The famine, he says, so terrible that the years of plenty will be forgotten. This is hard for us to imagine. I just spent some hours last week walking through Costco, where if, if I spent years eating, I don't think I could have gotten to the end of it. We have access to almost as much food as we could possibly want whenever we want. But here, unimaginable famine for seven years. But again, Joseph puts God at the forefront. Joseph here is, is acting as God's prophet, announcing his plan. It is happening. God is sovereign over the Nile, over, over even the natural evil of famine. He, not you, governs all creatures and events. But Joseph doesn't stop at interpreting the dream. He, 
He goes on in the next verses to propose a plan to preserve life. His wisdom springs into action to bring blessing to all the land of Egypt. So there in verses 33 through 36, he suggests reserving one-fifth of the produce in the years of abundance that should be enough to last with some rationing seven years of famine. Church, as we have studied the story of Joseph these last few weeks, we have seen at every point how it prefigures the pattern of the greater Joseph to come, Jesus Christ. Yes, we have, have said it's, it's like a shadow, it's, it's blurry around the edges. But since today we have the true form, we can look back into the story of Joseph and see how it speaks of Christ. And something I want to observe in our, our second point here, rise. First, in, in chapter 40, verse 15, and now in chapter 41, verse 14, the ESV translation refers to the place of his imprisonment as a pit. That's in chapter 40, verse 15, and 41, 14. It calls the place of his imprisonment in the ESV a pit. You might be reading from a different translation that calls it a dungeon or a prison. They just use that to, to be clear what it really is. But, but the Hebrew word really is just a pit, a hole in the ground. It's the same word that, that was used when his brothers threw him into a pit, a hole in the ground in the wilderness. And it is the same word that the Hebrew Bible uses for the grave. Take Psalm 30, verse 3, for example. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. That is where the, the souls of the dead reside. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the hole in the ground, the pit, the grave. Or Proverbs 1.12, speaking of the, the plan sinners have to attack the innocent, says, Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive, and whole like those who go down to the hole in the ground, the pit, the grave. What I'm trying to show you, brothers and sisters, to the Hebrew reader, it would sound like what happened to Joseph? Well, that he's been raised from the pit, the grave, so to speak. When in verse 14, Joseph is brought up out of the pit, it is the great fulcrum of Joseph's story. All descent down into the pit and now rising out of the pit. And it points us, saints, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God raises his servant from the pit to reign and rescue. What we have here in the story of Joseph is an early prediction in pattern of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have already seen, brothers and sisters, in the weeks past that Joseph, like Jesus, is the beloved son sent by the father. Sent to his brothers who hated him. Sold for silver. God was present with him as he brought blessing to others. And this, this brother remained obedient even to the point of being thrown into the pit. But in time, we see here, God raised him from the pit to exalt him to the great heights of the right hand of the sovereign. 
Yes, the life of Joseph is a pattern to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The reason why we can have hope today is because the only true God, the highest and only sovereign creator and ruler of all, came as a servant to die for us. He went down into the pit of death because that is what we all deserve for our sins, our selfishness, our pride, our anger are all against God's law, and we can never, by our good works, earn God's forgiveness. On the cross, Jesus suffered the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins. Death, to go down into the pit, and not just physical death, but eternal spiritual death. Because God is good, He is opposed to all evil, even the evil that we defend and excuse. And so, because Christ was condemned with the punishment that we deserve, death, we can receive forgiveness for our sins. If we simply acknowledge their guilt, turn away from them, submit to God, and trust in His sufficient sacrifice. But Jesus didn't just die for us. He didn't stay dead. A dead Savior cannot help us. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 19 and 20. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all pity a people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Saints, no, our hope in Christ is not for this life only. Christ has been raised as a firstfruits. We will be raised in Him. So Christ's resurrection from the dead is the grounds of biblical hope. We can have that kind of resolute confidence of what will happen because it did happen to Joseph and it did happen to Jesus. If God can conquer even the pit, even death, nothing will stand in the way of God's promises. His love went through the grave to the lowest depth that we can fall in our sin and rescued. He rescued Joseph. He rescued Jesus. And by faith, He will rescue you too. So I ask again, what are you hoping for? Christ's resurrection from the dead is proof that evil will not win the war. You will suffer. You will one day die. But in Christ, suffering ultimately cannot harm us. Whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? Are you an optimist? Or a pessimist. Christ's resurrection from the dead is the grounds of your hope. You could take that to the grave. But Joseph is not just raised from the pit in our narrative. He also takes a place at the right hand. So our third point, the final movement of our passage, reign. In chapter 41, verses 37 through 57, reign. 
We're going to read again, starting in verse 37, and read through 45. So read with me again, starting in verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only, excuse me, only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphonath-Paneah, and he gave him into marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went, over, went out over the land of Egypt. Well, here we have a description of Joseph's reign. Our, our third point here, reign. Joseph's meteoric rise is complete. He, as he was placed over Potiphar's house, because God was with him, as he was placed over the prison, because God was with him, now he is placed over even all of Pharaoh's house. And why? Because God is with him. Pharaoh said it himself there in verse 38. Can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? He has God's spirit. I'm, I'm sure Pharaoh here spoke better than he knew. But he is right. God is with Joseph. Joseph's wisdom and discernment come from God. And now everywhere Joseph goes, people call out before him, bow the knee. He is second in the kingdom only to Pharaoh. I hope this reminds you of the dreams that, that Joseph had in Genesis 37. This is the initial fulfillment of the dreams that started it all. His dreams from God of, of royal homage. But it's not his brothers bowing down. Not yet. Here, in verse 46, in the next verse, we learn that Joseph was 30 years old when he took his place by Pharaoh's right hand. 13 years in total. Remember, he was sold into slavery when he was 17. It will be another nine years before he is reconciled to his brothers. Verses 47 through 49 record his administration during the seven years of plenty, going off exactly again as God had shown him. Again, the grounds of his, his hope in God, the, the highest and, and only sovereign, the creator and ruler of all, has been proven over and over. But you might be worried. With all his success, with an Egyptian wife, might Joseph become Egyptianized, start adopting their customs, and worst of all, start adopting their worship now that he is one of them? No. The 13 years of suffering have created an ironclad hope in God. We'll see the proof of this all over the rest of the story, but, but here it is in the naming of his two sons. Read with me 
starting in verse 50. Chapter 41, verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all the hardship in all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Your Bible might have footnotes there to tell you that the, the names, Manasseh and Ephraim, sound like the descriptions of, of why he named them that way. We have already seen Joseph give credit to God when it would have been easy for him to boast. And here again, with, with no one around him worshiping Yahweh or encouraging him to boast in God, he gives credit to God. He gives his sons Hebrew names, not Egyptian, and gives God credit in each of them for some good gift. His first Manasseh gives credit to God for making him forget his hardships, both in Egypt and the suffering he experienced in his father's house. His second Ephraim gives God credit for his current fruitfulness. It is from God, not himself, not Pharaoh. And he still calls it the land of his affliction. This isn't home. As long as he is there, it will be the place of his sojourning. Christian, I wonder if you can give credit to God in the midst of your great prosperity. Can you give credit to God even when no one around you in your family, in your workplace, is giving credit to God? Well, and as predicted in the final verses of our chapter, starting in verse 53, the years of famine come. All the earth is coming to Egypt to receive bread by the end of verse 57. Just as God has brought blessing to Potiphar's house and the prison, God now brings blessing to all Egypt and the surrounding nations through his servant, Joseph. God raises his servant to reign and to rescue. And again, brothers and sisters, Philippians 2 speaks of Jesus being exalted and receiving a name that is above every name so that at his name, every knee should bow. He is raised to reign. Brothers and sisters, Jesus now reigns not just above all of Egypt, but all of creation to offer not just grain from the storehouses, but the saving bread of life. And the bread, the food that he gives, gives true and eternal life to the whole world. He calls out to all, not just to bow to Pharaoh's second, bow the knee to Jesus to receive life both now and forever. I hope, friends, that this week you enjoyed a feast with all the people that you love most. I... Hope that you afterwards weren't hungry for hours. But still, God gives us hunger to remind us of our continual need for Him. We need more than just daily bread. We need the bread of life. And it is only those who come to Jesus who He says will never hunger again. That is the hope that we celebrate today as we remember His death 
provision of bread in the Lord's Supper together. That, that we, with Joseph, can have absolute confidence in God because He is above all gods, the only true God, the highest and only sovereign creator and ruler of all. And as our sovereign he reached down in his love and power into the pit to rescue not only Joseph, but Jesus from the grip of death. And if you are in Christ, you too will be saved. Our risen Savior now reigns from heaven as exalted Lord to distribute salvation to all who call upon him to be saved. And by faith in Christ, he raises you from the death of sin to new life. He will one day raise you from physical death to eternal spiritual life forever in the age to come. So I ask one last time, what are you hoping for? Hope in our sovereign God who raises his servant from the pit to reign and to rescue. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would give us hope. Lord, that you would give us true biblical hope. Hope that is absolute confidence in what you have promised will happen. Lord, because you raised your servant Joseph from the pit, because you raised Jesus from the dead, you will give to us spiritual life and in the age to come eternal life. But Father, we, we pair that confidence with ignorance about its timing. We suffer. We experience the pain of death. We experience the pain of suffering. Lord, we do not yet know eternal life and its fullness in your presence forever. Lord, we don't know the hour when that will come for us, either by our death or your return. <clears throat> Father, until that day, we pray you would give us absolute assurance in your goodness that we would hope in our sovereign God who raises his servant from the pit to reign and to rescue. It's in Christ's name that we pray all this. Amen.